0: Tonight, I'd like to continue with the essential teachings of the Dharma. But since today was the day that, that you were invited to notice the whole range of thinking, I thought that I would share something that you may be able to relate to now that you've sat with yourself for three days. This is the words of Bhante Gunaratna, who says somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way and you never noticed, so it's a pretty profound sometimes shocking insight to to see the the um, the enormity of of the um, the unbidden torrent of thoughts that flow through our minds it's It's amazing because for perhaps a lifetime we've been taking every one of those personally. That's me. But when you see, it's said that we have 65,000 of them every day, and that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. (laughs) Now, do you think you would volition or intentionally repeat the same 65,000 thoughts or 60,000 of them every day? It becomes so obvious that that the thoughts think themselves. And so... Please be nice to yourself when you see how much the mind thinks that 's what minds do the thoughts are to our mind door of perception as a sound is to the ear it 's completely utterly a natural sense experience and believe me it 's not just meditators that are doing this we are all doing it and I came across a a study from Harvard I'd like to read you more than, I didn't have time to edit it down, so I'm going to read you a bunch of this, and if I run out of gas, I'll stop, but you'll get the point. It says, the title of this little article is, How We Daydream Half the Day, But It Still Makes Us Miserable. It may seem a harmless way to whittle the day's duller moments, but daydreaming actually makes us miserable, according to scientists. Research shows that our minds wander 46.9% of the time from the morning commute to doing the housework. It's only when making love and meditating that the brain fully focuses on the task at hand. Wandering mind, we spend almost half our time daydreaming, a study found. What is more, contrary to public or popular perception, daydreaming doesn't make us happy. It leaves us yearning for what might have been or what might be. Any of you recognize that? Yeah. Isn't it amazing to see that in real time? How that's just making these, these worlds of past and future, when we know that they don't even exist. They're just part of our imagination. Yet we build them into these houses of time, as though the future is somewhere in front of us and the past somewhere behind us. But it's just an idea it, arising in this unfolding present. And even present. Some would say, it's just another idea. It's just what's happening. It's just all of us sitting together here. Let me not digress too much. The findings from respected Harvard University in the U.S. suggest that rather than thinking about how life might be more pleasant, we would be better off living in the here and now. The researchers used mobile phone technology to contact more than 2,000 people as they went about their day-to-day lives to ask them what they were doing, how happy they were, and whether their mind was wandering. Volunteers tapped their answers into the phones, this is one good use of phone, with some giving updates several times a day, providing the researchers with 250,000 set of answers. This revealed the human mind to wander almost half the time, no matter what we're doing other than making love, according to this. The researcher said, mind-wandering appears ubiquitous across all activities. The study shows that our mental lives are pervaded to a remarkable degree with the non-present. Now, you had direct experience of that, didn't you? How much it's pervaded by the non-present. Study found that we are happiest when exercising, chatting, having sex, least happy when working or using a home computer. This (laughs) This is the part that I found interesting. Surprisingly, it showed that daydreaming about something more pleasant does nothing to make boring tasks more enjoyable. Instead, those surveyed tended to be less happy after letting their mind wander than they were before. In other words, rather than daydreaming because we are miserable, daydreaming makes us miserable. So we've all been trained, and it says the way that this is actually a very... Uh, advanced function to be able to daydream, to think about the imaginary past and future, and, it's, and to create and vision and all of that. But it's, uh, it's become uh, out of control. And we've lost touch, obviously, with what sits here on this uh, cushion. It's one teacher says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. How will you ever, how will you ever notice that when we're, when we're spinning? That's why we come here and stop. So you can hear by the, maybe the tone of what I'm saying is the point isn't to stop our thinking. It's to stop and make that profound shift from being simply carried along by those daydreams to noticing that this is the activity of mind. to know, From being completely incarnated in our thoughts to noticing, oh, this is, a, this is a, a selfing thought, this is a me thought, this is a you thought, this is they thought, this is a judging thought, a comparing. And it, I heard a little bit implicitly in some of the questions this morning that there's still some attempt to try to stop your mind. And Suzuki Roshi, a wonderful teacher, said, don't try to stop your mind. If you try to stop your mind, it means you're bothered by it. And if you're bothered by it, it will torment you mercilessly. (laughs) But he goes on to say, if you're not bothered by your mind, if you notice your mind, if you're not bothered by the waves of your mind, the waves will quiet, and you will you will see that, that there is discontinuity to our thoughts. And not only do we notice the presence of thoughts, but we also know their cessation, we know their absence. We, know what, what our, we start to sense what is our life here after our last thought has ceased and before the next one comes. We start to get a little glimpse of, of life, where it's actually touching us, where we're touching life, where we are life. We can't even separate ourselves out in that sense of immediacy. The way the Buddha described our, our compulsions and our fixations and our, our being lost in our imagination uh, He said we're like children playing in a house that's burning all around us. Literally oblivious to what we're doing to ourselves. Blinded by our confusion and our our ignorance. Just not seeing clearly. And so we fall into certain misperceptions when we live in our Imagination. We actually take uh, thoughts of ourselves to be who we are, but actually, the thoughts that you have about yourself could never capture who you are. You're so much more profound. You know what can you say about yourself really when you're just sitting here? Uh, if you don't pick up one of those ideas, all you can say is, "I'm, I'm here. I'm awake, and I'm filled with everybody here." But we're used to consulting the the memory banks, as one of my teachers called the the graveyard of memory. Always looking to the past for our identities, when there's such a fullness right here, so much beyond the tangle of your of your ideas. So the Buddha, rather than even though it's a very dramatic sutra where he says you, you're like children playing in a house that's bur- burning all around you and He goes on to talk about the burning of desire and the burning of becoming, the burning of all this stuff, but it's really, in the way that I see it, it's really the burning the fires of confusion so that you are blinded to the the open secret, it's sometimes called, the open secret that uh, what all of us in our mad search in our minds into the houses of time, we're Ultimately, really just searching for the, the one who sits here. That's why Emerson said, Who you are, shout so loud, I can't hear what you say. But yet, we, are, we somehow get so much caught in what we're saying that we miss our, our being that sits here. Not the idea of it, but the, just your immediate felt experience is so, on one hand, so ordinary. But when we start to feel that sense of connecting with life right where it's touching us, uh, it starts to feel a little bit more alive. And I have a feeling you're probably connected a little bit more with that sense of aliveness, of the present moment. Teacher Nisargadatta said, reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. So the Buddha woke up out of his particular trance, his trance of his imagination, his trance of, of and all the habits that went with where his thoughts led him. And uh, he woke up from it. He had the grace, you could say, of being confronted with uh, a feeling of dissatisfaction of a feeling, a kind of queasiness, a kind of feeling that something wasn't quite right. And then he had the, what it, what's considered the great good fortune of confronting the so-called heavenly messengers. The, and the reason they're called heavenly messengers is because they they remind us or wake us up to what, uh, what's really going on, what's really important, and make us ask a little deeper questions about how to... Um, about what our life is about and how to find relief, as Anna was speaking about it last night, about the fact that we are that we struggle, that we suffer, and and how to end that. That's really all he was interested in. But these heavenly messengers that he confronted or that he was visited by or crossed his path were the obvious messengers in all our lives that we somehow tend to ignore or Try not to notice uh, of sickness, of aging or old age, and uh, and death. It's the fact of it that the that the very, as one dictionary definition put it, the very definition of birth is the leading cause of death. It's also the leading cause of everything that goes along with you, what you experience in your life. Birth is the leading cause of what. The Buddha later talked about It's the leading cause of of all the kinds of stresses that come with our life and the joys, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So he felt this this inherent experience of of something being not quite right, Something, something, a feeling that whatever it is that we look at hear, smell, taste, feel, eat, every even joyous moment, he saw that it was marked by some feeling of being unsatisfactory, unreliable. He saw what's called Dukkha. Dukkha is the word that's loosely translated as suffering, but the deeper it really maybe shouldn't even be translated because it's got so so many levels of meaning. but. It has the, the image that the Buddha used was a, or I'm not sure if it was the Buddha, but it, the, the experience of a, a, an axle not fitting quite right in the wheel. The squeaky wheel, the, the unevenness, the, the instability, the, um, the just not think, life not being so smooth. And he felt this. And he was determined to find something that was a little smoother, more reliable. Some place that he could rest and have it be, not leave him with that feeling of dissatisfaction. But he saw that everything that he'd relied on, his body, he knew was not going to be a reliable refuge, a wonderful anchor for our attention when we're alive, but uh, not always pleasant and clearly gets sick, and gets old, and dies. And Perhaps he thought he could find some kind of reliability in his moods and in his emotions. You've seen how many of those have come and gone. Coming and going. No way to find any kind of lasting satisfaction in that delicious feeling you had when you ate uh, that... How about that lunch today? Unbelievable every meal here. It's, it's just remarkable. You can't take anything away from that, the amazing pleasure of that. But sometimes we we put so much faith in that pleasure that we we miss that it's, it's changing and then we're left with a feeling of oh, and a feeling of loss and what do we usually fill that feeling of loss with because nobody wants to feel that. We, we just fill it with the, the desire for the next meal. And we can spend our whole whole retreat waiting for the meals, (laughs) waiting for the bells, waiting for the Dharma talk, whatever the next source of entertainment. Sorry to say, as you could probably notice, these Dharma talks are also unsatisfactory. (laughs) Unreliable as a source of well-being. You may have a few moments of pleasure. (laughs) But... What he found more interesting is not so much that search for pleasure, but uh, searching for something, that w- a sense of well-being that didn't depend so much on the, the fleetingness of, of pleasure. But as you, most of you probably know the story, he, he was not, uh, there was really, he didn't have the answer to how to find something more reliable at first. You know, we're sitting here because eventually he did find something more reliable, something place to rest, place of freedom and ease. Uh, he did find that sure heart's release, but at first he didn't he didn't have a clue. But he made that determination to sit just like you are, and he went to and he didn't have as much good company as you. And the people he he had good company with were doing. Uh, they were sincere but some of them were starving themselves others were just caught in in exotic uh, states of concentration he wanted something uh, that would uh, that would last something that was uh, unconditional unconditioned uh, deathless you could say and so he ultimately went out on his own and sat down just like you gathering his attention together, using that that capacity to apply and sustain effort at staying right here in the most gentle way. And in his mind, as he had experienced in some of his previous practice, states of concentration arose. He didn't concentrate his mind. He just did that applied and sustained effort. He gathered his attention. And then concentration came, and he experienced states of beautiful bliss and happiness. And, uh, but he also saw that those states were um, as delicious as they were, even the more, more more rarefied states, probably the ones you've been hoping would show up on this retreat. He, 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 on one hand he said that if you don't have some little glimpse of that sense of peace or contentment, even for a moment, you, it's hard to keep going. But that same experience, if you, if you make that your devotion, if you think that's what the practice is about, you'll be, um, you'll be uh, unhappy because eventually even those delicious states, as you probably noticed, they fade away. Nobody in his day was teaching anything but these rarefied states that he could find anyway. So he went on in his own without the, without the sangha you have the sangha and he sat down and he was visited by the same mental states the same common afflictive emotions that all of you have faced it wasn't just in fact he still faced them even after his awakening the hindrances wanting the wanting mind the mind that is the lustful mind looking for for the next thing, the, the, the part of your mind that's, that's moving toward what's next, that's waiting for the, the bell, that's held in that state of suspended happiness. Isn't it amazing how uh, just a little mental state can color our perception and make us think that this moment's not okay. And it's just a trance. I think I asked you earlier today, toward the end of the 12 o'clock sitting, I said, notice if you're waiting for the bell to ring. I know Mark mentioned this the other night. But then I invited you to take your attention, I don't know if I said this, but take your attention away from the bell and let yourself feel that state of waiting and see what happens. What often happens is that state of waiting shows itself as a as a mental state it has that phys- physical component to it but it shows itself as just a changing little weather front it comes it goes The bell hasn't even rung yet and often because you brought attention to it, it it evaporates or it just becomes even more it becomes an interesting thing to pay attention to whether it goes away or not but once you become aware of something and you're actually attentive to it that state of suspended happiness stops. You're actually home, right? I, even in the feeling of wanting itself. And in that moment, that state of, of waiting or wanting becomes your path. It becomes your way back to, to right here. Does this make sense? So the Buddha was visited by all the afflictive feelings, all the tra- all the, the feelings that make us feel like the present is some place that's either, as, as Eckhart Tolle says, a place we pass through on our way to someplace else, makes it feel like an obstacle or like the enemy being right here. And that has, it has nothing to do really with what's happening right here. It has everything to do with the state of mind, the coloring, the attitude of mind, the, the reactions in the mind that's noticing. that's that's here, waiting, wanting, hoping, expecting, hating, resisting, trying to make something happen. Any of you notice that, trying to make something happen? Buddha described these different reactions. He said that these are all flavors of what he called the three root causes of suffering. Greed or grasping in the mind, aversion in the mind, or Greed, hatred, aversion, and delusion. Because inherent in that little, that little struggle is, is the feeling that it's me, that I'm struggling. But really, it's just a mental state. It's a little weather pattern. And this is what we can begin to see, that the wanting mind is wanting. It's not I, it's not me, it's not mine. It's wanting is wanting. I'm not resisting. Resistance has arisen. And it feels like this. And once it becomes something that is noticed, then it, it shows itself as not quite as solid and not quite as personal. But that's, that's why we look at these different states of mind as part of our practice. The very states of mind that torment us, that keep us from feeling at home, become our, the, the pathway to a sense of freedom, to be able to rest here in this present moment with things just the way they are. Just as they have come to be, so the Buddha sat like you and was faced with the afflictive emotions, started to think about all the things that he might that he should be doing or could be doing that would give him more pleasure, more sat more more delight, and because he was he had he had aroused that sense of steadiness and strength of heart and mind instead of following whatever that fantasy was that came into his mind instead of following it he noticed it and then he noticed he noticed the wanting mind he noticed the mind that was resisting the aversive mind the fearful mind the um the angry mind the frustrated mind all those Tendencies of mind that are born of of our conditioning, of of wanting to of an innocent attempt for each of us to try to find relief. Our, we constantly enter into some little world of uh, liking and disliking, and the expanded the expanded uh, effect of that, which is which is to feel like we're in this drama of I'm going from here, I've been there. I'm going from here to that place in the imagine, in the future when I'm going to finally feel some okayness. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to feel okay. The world's going to be okay, and all of this is the trance of the of greed or hatred in our mind. If only that person could get rid of. I don't know. Did did Mark? I think he talked about the the romancing, or was it you on? I don't remember the tendency of our mind that always shows up on a retreat. There's just that that moment where you look at somebody, even though we're not meant to be gazing at anyone, but you may catch them out of the corner of your eye and they trigger in you a pleasant feeling. You feel this pleasant association with the sight of that person or how they walk or what kinds of clothes they wear or whatever. And before you know it, your mind just takes off into the mating, the, you know, the dating, the mating, the marriage, the, the travel, the divorce, the <laughs> all in the span of, of two minutes. And for those of you who've, who have, most people who've sat retreats have had what's called, it's called a VR, of Vipassana Romance. It can be when you're caught in the fantasy of it, there's a, superficially it has a certain pleasure. But the underlying feeling of, is, I'm just hopelessly, hopelessly dependent on whether this works out or not. And that person has become the secret to my ultimate happiness. And of course, what does this do to my experience of the present moment? It obliterates any chance of relief and peace right now. And I literally enter into this this drama, playing in a house that's burning all around me. I'm just burning up with, often the comment is, burning with desire. And then, of course, at the end of the retreat, you go up and cross that grand canyon and approach that person. And they look at you like they've never seen you before, oblivious. After you've, or they open their mouth and they, they don't sound <laughs> anything like you. Imagine them waxing. And... The flip side of that also shows up on retreat. It's called the VV, where the, somebody triggers an unpleasant reaction. Whether it's their, Well, I don't want to single any kind of... Even if they walk in the door late, it, can, it becomes all about me. Everything gets about my retreat, and they're causing my retreat. They're ruining my retreat. My retreat would be fine if they just wouldn't have made so much noise when they walked through the door. Pretty soon, our mind is uh, has made them the reason for all our unhappiness, and really, the hope, the the um, any sense of well-being that's that is. Um, that we may be able to discover here, at least for that time, if this goes unnoticed, is lost. But the good news of our practice, what the Buddha recommended, is, and what he did under the Bodhi tree, is he paid attention to that state of, weight, of wanting, that, that proliferation of desire, the proliferation of aversion or fear. And then he noticed also the, the proliferation of worry, or the proliferation of, of regret. Any of you have any of those on this retreat? And the effect on our body, this feeling of restlessness and agitation, restlessness and agitation. When our the worry, our well being has gotten tethered to the to the future and, and there's always that uncertainty about whether or not it will deliver, and so we're we're left churning and then really have a hard time sitting still. And that same with trying to fix what has happened before and dwelling in the in the stories of the past, which is all very innocent. This is what we're conditioned to do. It's maybe even a high function, but it's gotten out of control and it's gone unrecognized. And we've incarnated in those thoughts. We've lived in them, forgotten what's, what it's like to be right here. But he paid attention to those things as you're paying attention to them. And the more he paid attention, the more his mind rather than being contracted and dulled by these afflictive emotions when they go unnoticed, they be they brightened his mind. They became his path. And he noticed, whoa, this is this is the wanting mind. This is the doubting mind. That's the other one of the five main mental states. This is doubt. Doubt feels like this. And the more he noticed, the more it it was like rubbing, rubbing two sticks together. mind ignited with a kind of brightness. It, it lightened the mind rather than dulled it and dimmed it. Until his mind, from paying attention to things moment to moment, was shining. Literally shining in its clarity. And the more his mind shined in its clarity, the less reactive he became. The more interested, the more curious the more he started to see the commonality of everything that went through his mind. The more he saw that it was coming and going, the less he grabbed and the less he pushed away. The more he experienced this quality of a kind of joy, a taste of a well-being that didn't didn't depend on what was in his mind. Perhaps today you tasted when you were just able to be with even a painful feeling without, uh, without suffering. So the pain is, you've probably heard this before, the pain is inevitable, but the suffering is optional. It has everything to do with the way that we relate to what's there. And the very function of mindfulness is to, be, is to transform that way of, of relating to our experience with grasping, condemning, or making an identity around it, making it into me, to, to simply noticing with great Immediacy, great love and curiosity about what 's actually happening. how have things come to be how have they this is this is how life has unfolded up to this moment. This is where everything of all time has come together into this moment that 's the function of mindfulness for us to taste life in its um, reality, free of our free of the at least the belief in all the considerations and analysis and interpretation and speculation, but freshly. And we even use our most difficult emotions, our most difficult states, as that means of connecting with that sense of immediacy. So as, as the Buddha, and as you today, in those moments that, that, um, that you stopped resisting, stopped grasping, or, or noticed resistance and noticed grasping, and, and in that moment of mindfulness, you weren't, whenever we're mindful, we're not moving toward or away from anything. We're just there. We start to touch that point that the Buddha called ekagata. That point uh, which is, ekagata means the single point uh, that includes everything. So that, You may not seem like it in a step or in a bite or in the knowing of a thought or a sound, but in that moment you're, you could say you're coming home to reality. So as the Buddha rested in this, realizing the sense of of freedom, a sense of of non-reactiveness, his mind uh, just kind of opened. And he realized that, wow, the very freedom that I have been searching for, the sense of something that was uh, unconditioned, is none other than the innermost nature of my own mind. And his his um, looking for it elsewhere stopped. Of course what he told everyone after is pay attention. It's whatever you're looking for is right here. And you start with something that you can that you can pay attention to easily, your body and your breath. Don't look anywhere don't look beyond this this fathom-long body. And at first he didn't think anybody could get it, but he he then uttered this phrase. He said, in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and senses, lies the world, lies the cause of the world, lies the end of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the end of the world, the cessation of the world. What he means by the world is, is, the worlds that we create in our imagination. The endless cycles of, of birth and death that we go to. You could say metaphorically in your mind, it may be literally, but we don't know that on, real, on present evidence. We only know that we go into mind worlds continuously, creating a picture of the world. And it's, I, I'm very happy that I can create a picture of the world. That I can think about the people in different parts of the world that are suffering and this or that, but that 's not really the world. the world is right here the world is you the world is your is hearing is smelling is tasting is touching thinking even and due to our our not, not being attentive to the world as it is, as it's come to be, is our mind in reaction to what's happening every moment. In reaction, our mind goes into a state of fire flight in the form of, I want, I want to get rid of, and I'm insecure. Any of you ever feel that? And then the pressure of all that As Anu talked about this morning, the pressure of all that spawns this world called papancha, this world of imagination. And we literally, in our minds, create a version of ourselves that's going from the past, passing through the present, on our way to the future. Somebody who doesn't even actually exist, the imaginary version of us. Now, whenever I say this, I always like to remind everyone that you exist. You're here in living color. But that you that you are in your immediacy, in your unique expression of life, so different than the version that goes in your mind, and that when unnoticed, drives you into actions, drives you into actions of looking elsewhere for a sense of well-being, overlooking this moment. So the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body lies the world. So when he got up from his cushion, having seen something very subtle, he went to see his friends who thought would be some of his ascetic friends who were the most sincere, who he thought would understand what he had realized. It could be at least pointed in that direction. And he saw with his mind that, that there were those with just a little bit of dust on their eyes. And if they were if they could brush away the dust and that's another function of mindfulness just mindfulness moment to moment brushes brushes the dust of as one teacher Nisargadatta says brushes the dust of memory to that so that the clear mirror of our mind is is laid bare and anna spoke earlier today about our mind being mirror like this is Rumi puts it this, We are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in every moment. We are the mirror as well as the face in it. But the Buddha saw that there were those who, if they could brush the dust of memory, could realize that sense of intimacy with all life and melt away that sense of isolation and separateness. As you can see here, I am the mirror and as well as the face in it. We're not as separate from things as we think. And you feel that in the silence. So what, did he, what do you think the Buddha said to his friends? He didn't start with the with the good news. He ended with the good news. He started with the news that he thought that we need to know, so that we stop running away from this moment by running after some imaginary uh, golden dream that will only keep our mind in a state of of um, of dissatisfaction that will only keep us. Uh, overlooking this open secret. He, told, he pointed to what is true about our lives and that we just avoid, out of love for ourselves, we avoid at any cost, but it actually uh, our attempt to avoid only uh, makes us more miserable. As that daydreaming comment said, we hope to find pleasure in our daydreaming, but then it makes it actually makes our life harder to bear when we're actually here. So he, he, he started with, in this very famous sutra called the, the Dhammachaka Sutta, which is the bigger sutta, but within that, he, the central part of it, which is really the central teaching that all the other teachings uh, flow from, was the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. He said that, that uh, this life has within it that which is hard to bear, things that are difficult to bear. It's not all pretty. He didn't say it was all bad either. He said it's not all pretty. There is is, uh, pain in being born. There's pain in aging, pain in sickness, pain in dying. There is pain in not getting what you want. There's pain in not wanting what you get. There's pain of separation. There's pain of of grief, of sorrow, of another word used is lamentation, lamenting. This is just a fact of life. This is one of the problems that every single being who is born has. So, if you have any of those, join the club. You're not alone. There's pain in things passing away. That there's pain in change, and there's just there's pain and challenge and. And unsatisfactoriness, that squeaky wheel feeling and just having to do so much. Every day having to get up, wash, clean, shop, work, listen, hear, see, all the just the constant barrage of the senses that it's the impingement of our sensitive, tender beings is hard for us to bear. Called that sankha Sankara dukkha we' are, we, are, we are born into a sea of conditions that that we have no control over really, all the things that present themselves in our lives we can 't even couldn 't even control the fact that we were born that we are part of a sea of what one person one teacher calls it contingencies, everything dependent on everything else we're we're constantly being moved by the by the currents of of life the the larger non-personal collective currents of politics and weather and and then all the family conditioning and all of that's hard to deal with it's not everything that it's cracked up to be and his prescription this was the diagnosis that he offered <coughs> the prescription for dealing with it is understand it and open to it, welcome it. This is how it is because if you don't open to it, if you don't see it for what it is, if you don't look at your life and and how it and what happens in your life, then your whole life will be an endless running from that, a, an endless attempt to escape, an endless movement away from the only possible source of well-being this present moment. And why would he offer that prescription? Because we avoid it at any cost. This is a little story that speaks of this, of the, somehow the belief that it's just me, most, most of all. Everybody else's, their life seems to not have so much Dukkha, but mine does. But everybody does. And this is a story called the, uh, The 84th Problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, even though he loved her there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children yes he loved them but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said I'm sorry but I can't help you. What do you mean railed the farmer you're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied sir it's like this all human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. And what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. <laughs> what's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. <laughs> the 84th problem, but somewhat more subtle than, than the 84th problem, has led us to uh, the second noble truth. He didn't stop with just the fact of there being all these things that are difficult to to deal with, that are just a fact of life. He said, what causes the the suffering, the the mental suffering, the suffering aspect of the, the suffering about the inherent condition that we find ourselves in as humans, as beings, what makes the suffering about that the dukkha in its suffering element. There's dukkha in its unreliability, in its unreliable, changing, uh, unsatisfactory. That's sometimes considered the best definition of dukkha, unsatisfactory. But it also has a flavor of suffering in it. And that is the suffering of not just what's happening, but our reaction to it. And he said the cause of our suffering is this deep, seated tendency, which we can use as our path, because you will notice it inevitably, but this deep-seated tendency to want things to be different than the way they are. That constant inner demand for what's next, different, that hope, expectation, that expresses itself as very strong desire for pleasure, that's one way, a strong desire for a strong sense of becoming, trying to get somewhere, become someone, it has a, a kind of dark side. It's just the desire to make everything stop, which is sometimes the hardens into a, a strong impulse to shut down, and people often will, will um, medicate or just some way to check out. And then the extreme version of it is that suicidal impulse. And sometimes... And that's the extreme of either desire or aversion. And both are a form of what the Buddha called tanha, or craving. And this state of craving is what what makes us uh, so unhappy. And it's also the cause of building that that house that we build in our mind, building that house of self, that it goes kind of like this, and this is kind of a shorthand version. Something happens. It's we, we, almost like the Vipassana Romance. Some, some pleasurable feeling comes. There is an, an instant liking of that, and that liking hardens into craving or into wanting. That wanting into craving. Pretty soon, my mind says, something's got to give. And then that pressure spawns that whole little world of "I want that, I need it, i 've got to have it," and we literally inc- we become this imaginary person in our mind, but of course, the body follows, and we 're caught in that lifetime of pursuing what I want to happen and I know Anna read from Rumi about our wanting mind last night, but I, a poem that it reminded me of when she was speaking was this poem where he said, Failure is the key to the, we'll say, queendom within. Your prayer should be break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring, and finally I have no will. Because if we, if we, and this is, how do we break the legs of what I want to happen? We notice the wanting mind. We notice the mind that builds that house of me and me who exists in time, going from the past to the future, All that whole imagination. And how do we feel when we're in that hot pursuit? That when we're caught in the object, it's pleasurable, but there's often a feeling of unsteadiness, of, of insecurity, of fear. Our, our we don't know whether we're going to get what we want where if we're going to arrive, and that leaves us in a state it activates our fear body and we end up uh, uh, we end up feeling very very insecure and that's often what we feel is so much fear on retreat and in our lives and it, and unfortunately, when we notice how much fear and how much our mind is in a state of wanting, the way it's building that house itself, we often add a little extra sting to it by judging ourselves, by creating a new identity of the one who shouldn't be doing that and one who's going to make us stop doing that instead of bringing kindness and mercy to that innocent process that just started with a little reaction to the pleasant experience or a reaction to an unpleasant one or a reaction to the to, the, uh, to a neutral one where we just spaced out and then entered into the house of self in our imagination, just lost in thought. In any case, this is a very innocent process. But what we do in our practice is we, uh, we notice that. So what did the Buddha recommend for this cause of suffering, this state of craving that we tend to get bound up in? He said, this must be abandoned, must be relinquished. We have to let go. But it's not as though you can. Re- that language makes it sound like there's somebody here who's gonna let go of that over here. But it's really the natural function of mindfulness. When you notice the wanting mind, like waiting for the bell to ring, you feel it as a changing condition. The very knowing of it, the very being with it, helps you see that that feeling, when brought under the light of attention, liberates itself, it passes away. And then we can know in real time, that's why we ask you to pay attention to everything, in real time you can notice. The third noble truth, there is an end to suffering. There is an end to that stress of wanting things to be different than the way they are, of not wanting there to be problems. There is an end to that reaction. And that's the third truth, that you can in any moment leap into the middle of your life just by being mindful of it right where it is. That very instant of mindfulness, we stop running away by running after, we settle back, and we, in a sense, die to the moment. Many people have said many things about this realization that I'm simplifying it as something that you can notice in, in one moment, but it's often seen as a. if a person's been practicing a lot, they may have a very profound recognition of, of this kind of freedom. As one wonderful Japanese nun, Tejitsu, how she put it, Tijitsu saw that a rising arose. Now just think about the the last thing you paid attention to. Tijitsu saw that a rising arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So that moment of mindfulness is literally a moment of opening that tight fist of grasping or craving. And we discover in that little instant of of awareness, if we stay with it, that space is there as one Tibetan teacher says, open, inviting, and comfortable. Even in the midst of something that was up to that moment really hard to be with. The hard to be with had to do with holding on. We come to this end of suffering when we make peace with, with our life as it is. This very simple... Beautiful poem from a, I think he's an Argentine poet named Amado Nervo. Is there anyone here who speaks Spanish? I would love to have it spoken in Spanish. I'll read it in English. Would you come up and, and do that? It's, I, I've heard it said in Spanish, and it's so beautiful that I'd love to have it in the hall here. It goes like this. Very close to my sunset, I bless you, life, because you never gave me false hope nor unjust work, nor undeserved suffering. And now, as I reach the end of my worn road, I see that truly I was the architect of my destiny. That if I was able to extract the honey or the bitterness from things, it was only because it was I who put the honey and bitterness into them. Whenever I planted those rose bushes, I always harvested roses. It is true, after my flourishing, winter will follow. But you didn't promise me that May was eternal. Without a doubt, there, was long, there were long, painful nights, but you never promised me only good ones. However, I experienced many that were blessedly peaceful. I loved, I was loved, the sun caressed my face. Life, you owe me nothing. Life, we are at peace. Willing. thank you so much. Es called en, en paz.
1: En paz, muy cerca de mi ocaso, yo te bendigo, vida, porque nunca me distes ni esperanza vallida, ni trabajo injusto, ni pena inmersida, porque veo el final de mi, ruido, de mi rudo camino que yo fui el arquitecto de mi propio destino, que si extraje la miel y la miel de las cosas fue porque ella puso puse hiel puse y, y mileses sabrosas. Cuando, cuando planté rosales, coseché siempre rosas. Cierto, a, a mi los losañías va a seguir el, invie- el invierno, mas tú no me dijiste que yo Que que mayo fuese eterno. Hallé sin dudas largas noches de mis penas. Mas no me prometiste tus solo noches buenas. Y en cuando tuve algunas santamente serenas, amé, fui amado. El sol acarició mi paz. Vida, nada me debes. Vida, estamos en paz.
0: Thank you. So the Buddha didn't stop at uh, there being an end to suffering. He said, this must be realized. He said, finally, that, uh, and he was also, for. if you didn't remember, he was called Sukhya, or the happy one. So it was all about the path of of learning how to be happy. And he said, finally, that there is a path that we create with with the very stuff of our own life. There's a path that includes the purification of our actions, our speech, our livelihood, the training of, of wise effort, as Anna spoke of last night, the training of concentration and mindfulness, and the uh, the development of of wise intention and wisdom, and really the center of that, the navigator of the what 's called the noble Eightfold Path, is this the centerpiece is the moment to moment practice of uh, of mindful attention and loving kindness so a reminder once again as we as, before I read a closing poem. The passage from the Buddha, in this fathom-long body, with its perceptions and senses, lies the world, the cause of the world, the cessation of the world, and a, the path leading to the cessation of the world. And finally, just to express the, what you can discover in each moment, poem called The Little Duck from Donald Babcock to close. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean 100 feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold and he's thinking things over. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic and he's part of it. He looks a bit like a mandarin or the lord buddha meditating under the bow tree but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher he has poise however which is what philosophers must have he can rest while the atlantic heaves because he rests in the atlantic probably doesn't know how large the ocean is and neither do you but he realizes it and what does he do i ask you he sits down in it He reposes in the immediate, as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. I like this little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. Let's sit for a moment. (laughs) May all beings understand dukkha, abandon its cause realize its end, and cultivate path of freedom. May all beings be free. Thanks for your attention. Enjoy your present moments as you step into the midst of everything.